If we are seeking to talk about how do we know if God exists, it is absolutely appropriate for us to start at the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How do we know that the first five words of our English Bible are true? In the beginning, God. These opening words of the Bible come with a claim that before all of creation, there was God. He existed. How do we know that that is a statement that has veracity? How can we be sure of the truthfulness of the claim? And so that is really my task in this talk for Theology Week, to deal with, in the beginning, God. Since the Bible says that He is God from everlasting to everlasting, and that He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, then we are not just dealing with, did God exist in eternity past? We are also asking the question, does He exist now? And furthermore, we are asking, does He exist forever? It's a massive question to deal with in one talk. After all, humans have been wrestling with this as far back as history records. And we're going to knock it out in about 50 minutes. But the truth is, is that God's word is not silent on the matter. The truth is, is that God is not silent on the matter. Before we can jump into our question of how do we know God exists, I think we have to back up and we have to ask ourselves, how do we know what we know in the first place? And this is a question of epistemology. And maybe that's a new word for you, epistemology. Here's how R.C. Sproul defined the word. He said, epistemology, a subdivision of philosophy, is the science of knowing. Others call it the theory of knowledge. And just like everyone who is walking around on the earth has a theological stance, whether they realize it or not, everybody's got theology. Some people just have bad theology. Everybody walking around also has an epistemological stance. Everyone on earth has adopted some theory of knowledge as their lens, and they see the world through it. Their epistemology is what they believe takes their worldview beyond mere opinion to justified belief. Understanding epistemology is helpful, not just for what we're talking about here at Theology Week uh, regarding how do we know if God exists. It's helpful because it actually pairs down that which we must refute as Christians in the field of apologetics. There's a lot of opinions on how many different epistemological stances there are, but I agree with Dr. Jeffrey Johnson who says you can boil it really all down to four. There is an epistemology of rationalism. There is an epistemology of empiricism. There is an epistemology of existentialism. And there is an epistemology of revelation. And if that is true, we don't need to run around refuting every branch of every religious or irreligious belief system on the face of the earth. We really only need to refute the handful of epistemological viewpoints that those systems are born out of. And that is 
relieving. Let's start with this rational epistemology. Those who hold to a rational epistemology say that reason is the chief source and test of knowledge. But that is a very lofty view of the human mind, is it not? I mean, can we really leave the defining of ultimate reality to our own finite ability to reason and to rationalize? I'm 39 years old. When I was six, amazingly, you could still smoke on an airplane. What does that say about human reason? It wasn't until 23 years ago, 23 years ago, that smoking on planes was banned altogether. 23 years. We think we're so smart, we're barreling through the sky in these pressurized tubes with little fire sticks in our hands. I mean, we've had some idea that secondhand smoke can cause cancer since the Nixon administration. What does this say about how faulty human reason and rationalization is, and yet many are satisfied to make it the arbiter of truth? As Christians, we know this is futile. Adam's fall ushered in the curse of sin and has left the human mind darkened. Its reason cannot be the sole source of trust in the realm of knowledge. There are others who hold to a purely empirical epistemology. These are those who say, we know what we know by what we can observe, what we can see, what we can touch, what we can taste and smell and hear, what we can measure in a lab, what we can carbon date. Now, there's nothing wrong with scientific method. There's nothing wrong with empirical data. That's how we found out secondhand smoke is dangerous in the first place. They help us learn about this world that God has made. But this can only take us so far. A purely naturalistic mindset will find itself constantly stretched, constantly falling short when it comes to answering the massive questions that bear on the human soul. For example, if we ask natural science to start answering metaphysical questions like, what's the meaning of life? Or why do we love? starts to look like a little boy wearing his daddy's coat. The questions are too big for the lab. When we ask empirical data to give us answers regarding morality, it ends up looking like a muscle that got stretched too far and then snapped off the bone. For example, the empiricist can create the nuclear bomb, but he has no way to deal with the ethics of using it. Oppenheimer, anyone? And if you look throughout history, just as people get hurt when a muscle tears from the bone, humanity is often injured by sciences that cannot operate with any consistent morality. Eugenics, anyone? Furthermore, natural science is a cat that's always chasing its own tail. The more it discovers, the less it finds out it knows. The more mysteries it uncovers, the more it's exposed for not having all the answers. So how can we trust in it for ultimate truth? Then you have the existential epistemology, which will say every, uh, every individual doesn't need to go to the lab, doesn't need to go to reason, but needs to look within to find what is true. 
That every person has the ability to look within and create their own meaning. This is the mindset behind the played out, overused, vain, and ruinous phrase, find your truth. Well, what happens when my truth tells me you should no longer exist? What happens when my truth tells me that stealing your property is ethically okay because of my need, because of my circumstances? See, nobody actually lives this way all the time. They only live this way when it's convenient for them. Everybody knows there are objective truths outside of themselves they are bound to, no matter how much they look within. As Christian people, we do not find our primary basis for knowledge in human reason or in a lab or from within. We find our basis for knowledge in God himself and in his words in his works and what his words tell us about his works. Therefore, we have what you would call a revelational epistemology. We understand God to be a self-revelating God. He has revealed himself. And we look to his revelation as the foundation of knowledge. And this is important for us to understand from the outset at Theology Week. Consider these words from Herman Bavink. Theology is the science which derives the knowledge of God from his revelation, which studies and thinks into it under the guidance of his spirit, and then tries to describe it so that it ministers to his honor. That's what we're doing this week in a nutshell. Listen to what Bob Inc. says in the same breath, though. And a theologian, a true theologian, is one who speaks out of God, through God, about God, and does this always to the glorification of his name. We're not making up stuff here this week. We're not just doing speculative guesswork. We are looking to the self-revelating God, and we are basing what we know on what he has revealed to the glory of his name. God is the source of our knowledge. His revelation is the textbook on our school desk. So, if he's a self-revelating God, how has he revealed himself? To answer this question, we will ultimately turn to God's word, but we can also look to our Baptist ancestors to give us a little initial direction. 1689, Second London Baptist Confession, a cornerstone confession for Baptists, Southern Baptists included, opens with 10 paragraphs on the Holy Scriptures. And the first one is particularly helpful for us in our first talk here at Theology Week. Listen to what the Baptist divines had to say. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable. Yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and his will which is necessary unto salvation. 
Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diversified manners to reveal himself and to declare his will unto his church. And afterward, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, for the more sure establishment and comfort of the truth, against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same holy unto writing, which makes the holy scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God revealing his will unto his people being now completed. Keech's Catechism, which is attributed to Benjamin Keech, one of the earliest particular Baptists, it helps us cut through these words with some simple question and answer. Question three of Keech's Catechism, how may we know there is a God? Answer, the light of nature in man and the works of God plainly declare there is a God, but his word and spirit only do it fully and effectually for the salvation of sinners. In my personal catechism of choice, we find it stated in even simpler terms. Here is Adam Murrell's Young Baptist Catechism. How do we know God exists? He reveals himself to us. How does he reveal himself to us? In nature, in his word, and in his son, Jesus Christ. The 1689 Confession, these catechisms are pointing us toward what we would call God's two books of Revelation. First would be the book of general revelation or natural revelation. This is the knowledge of God that comes through the created order, and we see it talked about in Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The second book would be the book of special revelation. This is the knowledge of God that comes to us in the scriptures. And Psalm 19 has something to say to us about that book as well. Starting in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. God's two books are not at odds with each other. Instead, these books of general and special revelation work in tandem. They reinforce one another, they complement one another, and they both help us to answer our question regarding God's existence. They both help us with the business of believing and understanding and standing on in the beginning of God. So I'm going to spend the rest of my time flipping through 
both of these books in order to set us up for the rest of the week as we will continue to study the doctrine of God. Let's start with God's book of general revelation. Sometimes it's called natural revelation. What is it? What does it do? Who receives it? I'm going to use the term general revelation over natural revelation just because I think it, that, that the word general speaks to the nature of it. It's what people are most familiar with. This is revelation from God that is universally received by all people. John Calvin spoke of it in this way. He said, because God desires that the chief end of the blessed life should be to know his name, he reveals himself clearly to everyone so that he should not seem to want to deny some men entry into happiness. For although in his nature he is incomprehensible and hidden from human understanding, He has impressed on each of his works certain signs of his majesty by which he makes himself known to us according to our small capacity. Signs, I say, so familiar and so obvious that the blindest and most untutored of men have no excuse for ignorance. Calvin's echoing the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 as he speaks about people who suppress truth about God so they can just keep going in unrighteous living. Romans 1.19 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Why is that? Why are all people without excuse? What is it about the nature of general revelation that removes any excuse the sinner would attempt to make about not being aware of God and their accountability to him? Well, the two passages that we have looked at so far, Psalm 19 and Romans 1, both help us to understand First of all, we can learn from these texts that general revelation is immediate. It's immediate. People are without excuse because of the immediacy of God's general revelation. In a moment, we'll see how special revelation is not immediate, it is mediatory. But general revelation is not this way. It's immediate, meaning it is experienced without a mediator. So I will explain it this way. In 2019, my Washington Nationals went to the World Series, and I watched six of the seven games in mediatory fashion, meaning I watched them on television. I wasn't there. I was reliant on the mediator of TV and broadcasting to get the feed to me so that I could see what was going on. In truth, during game seven, I got so nervous that I paced around in the parking lot of our church at Seaford Baptist, and my friend Doug Eccles, the pastor of Bethel Baptist Church, texted me pitch by pitch what was happening in the final few innings because I could not handle watching it with my own eyes. So I had a mediator in Doug Eccles relaying to me the events as he was watching it through the mediator of television. However, when it comes to game three, I watched the game not through a mediator, 
It was not mediated to me. I watched the game in immediate fashion. Because our loving church body threw money together and bought me a ticket to the World Series. And I was there in the flesh. And I saw what happened before the people on TV at home could see what happened because there was no delay. They were watching at home with anywhere from a 10 to 60 second delay depending on what TV service they were using. But I saw it as it unfolded immediately. General revelation is immediate. It's immediate in the sense that anybody can go outside, see the earth and know there must be an earth maker. Psalm 19 verse 1 demonstrates this when the psalmist says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. You just look at the the stars in the sky. They will tell you with immediacy, without a mediator, that they were hung by hands infinitely more powerful than yours. Bavink understood this. He used the term spontaneous to describe the way general revelation communicates with immediacy. Talking about man's knowledge of God, he said, knowledge of God never need to be instilled in people by coercion or violence, nor by logical argumentation or compelling proofs, but belongs to humans by their very nature and arises spontaneously and automatically. It's immediate. General revelation is not just immediate, but it is continuous, meaning it doesn't stop. From creation, there is no gap in the record. God's handiwork in creation is always on display. Psalm 19 verse 2 says, Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So from the zebra's stripes to the unsettling looking fish with no eyes and giant teeth and the darkest recesses of the ocean, from the stars you see with the naked eye to the ones that require the highest powered and most technologically advanced telescopes for viewing, from the spitting volcano to the serene beach in North Carolina, from the domestic house cat to the oak tree that it sits under. God's creation never stops proclaiming His glorious existence. General revelation is immediate, so people are without excuse. It's continuous, so they are without excuse. And it is universal, therefore they are without excuse. You see this in Psalm 19, verses 3 and 4. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun. It's universal. Everyone, everyone hears this revelation. This is why there's no atheistic tribes, not naturally, not one. No atheistic peoples, you're not going to find them. We never have. You have to be taught atheism. It does not arise spontaneously. Instead, for as long as we have historical records, we have people either worshiping the true God as he has revealed himself to them, or we have people worshiping what old Bavink calls the distorted forms. All the false religions, 
All of man's attempt to appease the divine are an admittance that they have received general revelation. John Calvin confirms this when he says, Yet even as the heathen admit, there is no nation so barbarous, no race so wild, that it does not have a heartfelt impression that there is a God. Paul can say that no one is with excuse because everyone has received general revelation. And they prove this in their assumption of divinity. It's immediate, it's continuous, it's universal. People are also without excuse because God's general revelation is effective. Meaning God gets his point across. For what can be known about God, Paul says in Romans 1, is plain to them. It's clear. It's revealed. It's known. And why is it this way? Why is it plain? Because God has shown it to them, Paul says. His attributes, which we're going to talk about later this week, though they are invisible, the apostle says they have been clearly perceived. General revelation does its job. God reveals himself in his works and his eternal power and his divine nature are distinct and they are legible in the revelation. They are obvious and it's been this way since the beginning in Genesis 1. Now, this is a lot of talk about the external nature of general revelation, which you can walk out into the world and see, and how it is immediate and continuous and universal and effective, but we also have to say that there is a sense in which God has revealed himself internally, in a general way, to the human conscience. Just as the religious endeavors of man are universal, there are universal objective truths that do not need to be taught. There are certain moral laws that are common to all different sectors of society because they spring up out of humanity's image-bearing conscience. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. God is an eternal moral being, perfectly righteous. He always has been and he always will be. He determines the standards of rights and wrongs. And the fact that societies universally outlaw things like murder, universally outlaw things like theft, serve as a proof of God's stamped image on humanity. It's just another example of how God has generally revealed himself to all people. Now, you might hear all this and think, well then, it's so obvious. Why doesn't everyone just fall down and worship the potter who formed their clay lives? Well, as a revelational people, we know that God has told us that our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell in the garden. They ate of a tree that was forbidden by God's spoken law, and they transgressed that law. They ate of a tree that meant certain death, and their sin brought death into the world, which spread to every one of their kids born from two human parents. This is why you cannot go out into the world without a Bible in your hand, 
and build yourself a theology about God based on what He's generally revealed to everyone. Our hearts and our minds have been darkened by the stain of sin. It's a poison in the well of every human heart. And people suppress what they know to be true about God so they can press on in unrighteous living. However they see fit according to their own eyes. But as much as they may try, they cannot escape the reality of God's existence. They cannot escape His general revelation to all people. And His general revelation to all people is actually revealing His wrath against the idolatry and the immorality of man. In that same Romans 1 passage, Paul says, For the wrath of God, in verse 18, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Notice that Paul says revealed in the present tense. This is something that's happening now. Joel Beakey, commenting on this, says, this is not the revelation of a future judgment day. This judgment comes through God's acts in history, such as giving sinners over to corrupting desires and a worthless mindset for rejecting Him. God's providential abandoning of a society to degradation and self-destruction is a public revelation of His wrath. People will often ask me, Pastor, what's happening to our country? What's happening to our nation? What's happening to our society? God is revealing His wrath. We've said, get out. We, we, we pushed them out. Not just into the margins. We want them out altogether. And He's letting us run. You want me out? I will reveal my wrath. I will let you run headlong into your foolishness. Keep reading Romans 1. This is exactly what Paul teaches. He says when people keep suppressing the truth and pushing God away, then the Lord will unhook the leash. He will reveal His wrath by allowing them to delve further into heinous sin. As they exchange the truth about God for a lie, He turns them over to the lie. As they trade in the Creator for the created, He gives them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. And Paul views lesbianism, homosexuality, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, slander, gossip, murder, strife, lies, hating God, insolence, pride, disobeying parents, Inventing evil, faithlessness, heartlessness, and ruthlessness, all as evidence of God revealing His wrath by giving people over to their suppression of the truth as a judgment for suppressing the truth. This is why the psalmist says in Psalm 14:1, the fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. That psalm is not speaking to an intellectual foolishness, though I would say that it is intellectually foolish to say there is no God. The psalmist instead is speaking to a moral foolishness, 
It's the moral fool who says there is no God so they can keep up the ruse that they're getting away with something all the while that something is actually wrath being revealed against their ungodliness. And then in creation itself Adam's fall and curse has subjected creation to futility. And so the same creation that reveals God generally to all of us is crying out in pain like a woman in labor. Groaning for redemption. Romans 8 verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So with every natural disaster, with every tragic occurrence in biological life, we are witnesses to the results of sin and to the providential judgment of God on display all around us. This is more evidence of his undeniable existence. And yet we must say general revelation has its limitations. You cannot build a salvific theology from that which is naturally perceived in general revelation because our perception is darkened by sin. If you try and do this, if you go out into the world, you start trying to build a ladder up to God based on general revelation, which many have done, you're going to get to the top of that ladder and find that in your depravity, you have created a God that looks a whole lot like you. A God that will approve of however you want to live and whatever you want to do. General revelation cannot reveal to us things that we must understand if we're to be in a covenant relationship with God. We're going to learn about the triune nature of God this week. You cannot learn that through general revelation. God has sent his son as a sacrifice for sin. You can't learn that by just studying the intricate design of a giraffe's heart or researching other planets. This is where the second book of God's revelation must enter in. This is where we turn to special revelation. Here is John Calvin again from his Institutes. If we think how inclined the human mind is to forget God, how easily it is led into error by what flights of fancy it dreams up hour by hour, new and counterfeit religions, we may readily understand how necessary it was for the heavenly doctrine to be couched in written form, lest it perish through forgetfulness or be lost through error or be corrupted by the impudence of men. Special revelation is that second book spoken of in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. It's the law of the Lord that is perfect and soul reviving. The sure testimony of the Lord which transforms the simple into the wise. The right precepts of the Lord which bring joy to the heart. The pure commandment of the Lord that enlightens the eyes. The true and righteous rules of the Lord which are better than the finest gold and the sweetest of honey. And when you walk in them, there is great reward. General revelation is received by all, 
special revelation is not. Everybody needs it, but not everybody has it. Special revelation holds out the hand of God's sovereign purposes and salvation. Shows us the truth revealed to those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. Father is chosen. The Son redeems. The Spirit quickens those whom the Father has chosen. This is what special revelation reveals to us. The basis for revelation is God Himself. Like general revelation, special revelation comes from God and it shows us His desire to intimately communicate with His covenant people. Theologian John Frame says that revelation reveals the communicative nature of the triune. God eternally communicates His love and purposes within the Trinity. This communication is essential to God's nature. He is, among all His other attributes, a speaking God. But as we've clearly established already, we're sinners. We are unrighteous. No one does good. Not even one. God is holy. He always has been. He always will be. And so then, there is a massive gap between God and man. Just like there was a massive gap between Yorktown and Houston during games 1 and 2 and 6 and 7 of the 2019 World Series. And so I needed a TV to mediate the images of the game to me. Well, we need the revelation of the triune God mediated to us. The only difference is the gap is a lot bigger. It's going to take a mediation much more grand in scale than what Hulu or YouTube TV could offer. And this is where God's brilliant only begotten Son enters in. Now, as we move into this portion of the talk, I want to say from the outset that Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley's Reformed Systematic Theology, Volume 1, it was crucial to me, crucial in preparing this portion of the talk. So, I want to give those brothers credit they beautifully lay out how each person of the Trinity worked together to provide us with the Godhead special revelation. So I want to provide you with a brief overview. And then we will close up to see how these two books come together and reveal the truth of God's existence to us and how we can use it as we proclaim His goodness in the world. First of all, the Son is the mediator of special revelation. The Son, Jesus Christ, He is the mediator of special revelation. John 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus is the Word. Jesus is God's living revelation, and He has been from the beginning. And as the mediator of God's special revelation, he bridges the gap between sinful man and holy God. As the image of God invisible, in whom all wisdom and treasures are hidden, he takes what his Father has delivered to him, and he reveals it to whom he chooses, thus revealing the Father. 
This is what he says in Luke 10, verse 22. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Secondly, we would say that the Father is the author of special revelation. The Son is the mediator. The Father is the author. Jesus has made this clear. John 7, verse 16. My teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. John 12, 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given himself... Father has sent me, has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And then once more in John 14, as he's speaking to Philip, how uh, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. So with this being the case, Beaky and Smalley say that revelation takes place through the Son, who is the mediator, according to the will of the Father, who is the author. Here they are. Revelation is an act of divine sovereignty in which the Father hides himself from some sinners, but reveals himself to others. Not according to their worthiness, but according to his good pleasure. This is illustrated in Matthew 11, verses 25 and 26. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Do you have the eyes to see and the ears to hear when it comes to special revelation, then you ought to get down on your knees and thank God for his gracious revelation to you. And finally, we have the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God who acts as the powerful and effective agent of special revelation. As Christ, the mediator of Revelation, is sent by the Father, the author of Revelation, he is anointed by who? By the Spirit, the agent at work in Revelation. As Jesus begins his ministry, and he walks into a synagogue in his hometown, and he unfurls the scroll of Isaiah, he reads, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Just before that, Luke explains that as Jesus exits his wilderness temptation, he comes back to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And he's baptized. The Spirit descends on him like a dove. And Jesus promised that after his death and his resurrection and ascension, he would pour out the gift of his spirit on his church as they take the message revealed to them to the world. He says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. 
In John 16, Jesus says, The Spirit will not speak of Himself, and said He will glorify Christ by showing what the Father has given to the Son. All that the Father has is mine, Jesus says. Therefore, I said that He will take what is mine, meaning the Holy Spirit, and declare it to you. Then as you get into the book of Acts, the church receives the Spirit at Pentecost, and the Spirit, again, is the divine agent empowering the preaching of God's revelation to Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. Furthermore, we know that it is the Spirit of the living God who has divinely inspired the written scriptures that we hold in our hands. You go through the Bible, you see God revealing Himself verbally. You see God revealing Himself visually in theophanies and visions and dreams. You see God revealing Himself providentially in His activity in the world through lot casting and things like that. The Bible informs us of God's work in creation, gives us a lens to even understand general revelation by. But in all these words of the Scriptures, the Spirit was speaking by God's servants. You see the doctrine of inspiration on display in Acts 4. As the believers are praying for boldness, they say, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Then they quote, Psalm 2, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? So, David writes Psalm 2, but he says it by the Holy Spirit. It's inspiration. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that the Scriptures are God-breathed. They have come from God. They have come out of God. They're not by the will of man. Instead, those that wrote them were carried along by God's Spirit. Peter says in 2 Peter 1.21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is inspiration, and the inspired Scriptures do not just tell us that God exists, they tell us what He's like. Now here's the thing about God's inspired word. Here's the thing about his special revelation. Many have opened it and they have read it. And they've walked away unchanged. They tried to climb climb the mountain of God's revelation only to get up to the top, shrug, and go back down. Or they got up to the top, still twisting God's Word to create a God of their own liking. But if you truly climb the mountain of God's revelation, here's what you will find at the pinnacle. Like Peter and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, you will find Christ in His glory. You will find Jesus the Messiah, for He is what Millard Erickson calls the consummate mode of revelation. It's why Jesus said to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. There was a time in which God spoke 
through the prophets, but now He speaks to us in the pinnacle of His revelation, His Son, Jesus Christ. The Creator of the world took on flesh, and He is God's ultimate communication to us. He is the mediator of God's revelation. He is the maker of our world. He is the Messiah for His people. The author of Hebrews says long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Listen, you read the Bible, you come to any other conclusion than that, start again. You miss the point. Jesus is the jewel in the ring of special revelation. The mediator is the majesty in God's revealed word. In him, God has tabernacled with us as the ultimate revelation of himself. Now, as we close up, I'm going to look at one more passage of scripture so that we can see how general revelation and special revelation go hand in hand how we can use them as we are evangelizing, as we are preaching the gospel to the world, how they complement and confirm one another. In Acts 17, Paul's in Athens. There's Epicurean philosophers there who believe that the supreme good is the absence of pain. Boy, the Bible's got a big problem with that. There are Stoics who believe the universe is governed by reason. And the goal is your inner peace. And they hear Paul speaking and they think he's a babbler. Much like our postmodern world thinks we are babblers. But Paul says to them, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now listen to the general revelation. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. God is, or or Paul is opening the book of God's general revelation. He's making his point to them that God exists. It's obvious. And general revelation is good for this work. It is a cannon that blows the shield out of the hand of the atheist and the idolater. 
It leaves them unguarded. Francis Turretin is the theologian who I think best helps us understand how to go about doing this. He says that we can look in the world and, 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 and there are people who presuppose God exists because of creation and conscience. That's what we've talked about tonight. Now some of them suppress the truth. and They become idolaters. That's what happens with most people in the world. And then there's a few people who become full-on atheists. But what they're doing is they're taking their shield of rationalism, of human reason, or their shield of empiricism, what they can measure in a lab, or their shield of existentialism, and they're holding it up. Many Christians get so intimidated by these shields. Oh, I can't argue with these people who know science. I can't argue with these people who know philosophy. I can't argue with these New Age spiritualists. They turn and they run or they remain silent. But here's the truth. As those with Bibles, we can look back through the lens of Scripture and understand general revelation through special revelation in a way that the natural fallen mind cannot. We should not fear these shields that the world holds up. We have God's truth. The revelation of God in creation and conscience takes the pagan philosopher's shield away and leaves them exposed leaves them in an epistemological crisis. And once the shield is removed, this is when we turn to the sword of the Spirit and we unsheathe the truth of God's revealed Word. And this is what Paul does in Acts 17. Verses 30 and 31, The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now on that day, Paul's audience further suppressed the truth by mocking him despite how they were exposed by the truth. And sadly, that's what many men will do. They drink rain and they think clouds. They act as if God does not exist. They'll think created things for created things. But we faithfully press on, understanding that the author of Revelation is revealing himself through the mediator of Revelation and that the powerful agent in Revelation, the Holy Spirit, is with us. And there will be many times in which the shield is kicked away and the sword of the Spirit is unsheathed and the gospel of Jesus Christ will pierce the heart and people will repent of sin and trust in Jesus, the only mediator, the Son of God. How do we know God exists? He reveals Himself to us. How does He reveal Himself to us? In nature, in his word, and in his son, Jesus Christ.